mentioned last week, but just uh, by way of a little bit of a reminder, um, it is usually my custom to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, however, with the last couple of weeks being as busy as they have been with Presbytery, this past week, which, by the way, is absolutely wonderful. Uh, I came from the PCA. I still love the PCA. There's some great people in the PCA. And it's a little contentious. We'll just say that. A contentious denomination. Everything's got to be debated. And it was just really nice to be part of a, a body where there just wasn't, there was discussion, but not like a ton of like debate. We all were pretty much in agreement with all, almost everything. Uh, the fellowship, the friendship, the kinship that I felt with everybody, it was really, uh, I told Hillary when I got back, I was like, it's like, I don't think I've ever said that, like, I, I, I've always, enjoyed presbytery meetings but i think that was maybe the first one where i was like that was great that was really good that was really good i, I really enjoyed it It was a busy week but man, it was so glorifying and, and edifying that you ask the question like ask you who ministers to you well me and the elders well who ministers to the ministers now that's, that's why we have presbytery actually a big reason why i became presbytery so, i think god knew what he was doing uh, uh when he gave us that form of government Baptist's heads are all fired up. Um, I'm saying that. But nonetheless, it is still So, anyway, that's the other thing. Okay, so Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, verses 23 to 25. We've kind of, um, uh, within all the busyness, we've kind of, I've noticed that we have really been highlighting through our other series uh, the ordinary means of grace. Uh, Mark 4, when we went through the parable of the sower, that was all on the word, particularly the preaching of the word. That's the, the first element of the ordinary means of grace. Our last sermon in the Habakkuk series focused in on song, which is really a type of prayer. And so I kind of piggyback on that. And we did prayer last week. Well, there's only one thing left, and that is the sacraments. Now, we're not doing baptism here. We're going to be doing the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you want the baptism, uh, Phil, like I said, come to that new membership. Uh, class. Uh, we'll, we'll talk We'll talk about that a pretty good bit. Uh, but today, I wanted to focus in on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and really see what exactly is happening when we do that and what good it is. So, with that being said now, Mark chapter 14, verses 23-25, before I read, let us pray and ask that God's blessings might be added to our time together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as I've already prayed and will continue to do so, uh, the words that we hold now in our hands are not the words of men, but are the very words of God. As you carried along its authors by your Holy Spirit, so that even though it, even though it contains their their voice and it contains their style and all these things, nonetheless, it is the inspired and inerrant word of God. It's the God who created the heavens and the earth condescended to us and gave us his speech. Do not let this word fall upon death here. Father, we would ask that you would make it active. Not just active for conviction, not just active for condemnation, but that you would make it active in the salvation of everyone that is in here. Whether they're not a Christian or whether they've been a Christian for however many years, we never outgrow our need of it. So, Father, Come by your spirit to magnify Christ who has testified to us in these words that we might have the power of God and the Father. So, Father, come and do this for us for the sake of Christ. In his name it be prayed. Amen.
hear now the word of God. Mark 14, verses 22-25. Now they were eating. He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So, Martin Luther, before he was known as the great reformer, the theologian of the cross, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, really the, theo the theologian of, of music and worship. He was an Augustinian Roman Catholic monk. And the reason he had become a monk was because he had become so convicted of his sins and so convicted of the holiness of God that the only way that he thought that he could escape the wrath of God was through a life of just pure servitude to God. And he realized that he thought that well, if I'm out there in the world doing kind of normal things, he was a he was a he was in law school before he became a monk. He's like, if I'm out there being a lawyer, out there just kind of living the normal life, being married, having kids, working, well, there's going to be all these different temptations, and I'm not going to be nearly holy holy enough to stand before a holy God. And so he comes into this monastery. He's beating himself. He's bruising himself, but none of it seems to be working. Like all these rituals that he's performing, none of them actually satisfy his soul, satisfy his guilt, or even satisfy the concern that he had for some of his friends and some of his family. Some of the family that he worried about was his grandparents. Uh, his grandparents had passed away. They had been in the church their entire life. However, he just couldn't quite be sure of their eternal estate. He was convinced that they were suffering there in purgatory, this kind of in-between place between hell and heaven, but much closer to hell where, where where the Roman Catholic Church taught that there you kind of made up whatever righteousness was lacking in yourself, you would kind of gain it there in purgatory through suffering, and then at the end of it you'd be able to come into heaven. Well, they also taught that you could spring people from purgatory by doing different things, you could buy indulgences, but you could also follow certain religious rites. One of these things that he, one of these ways of doing it was by going to Rome on pilgrimage. And you could go to something that was called the Sacred Steps. Sacred Steps. These were the steps that were, they were originally in Germany during the uh, Great Crusades. These steps were taken apart piece by piece, brought back to Rome and rebuilt. These were the steps that Jesus would have walked up to be judged by Pilate. Which, by the way, it's on my bucket list. I really want to. I really want to see this. I think it's a pretty incredible thing. But the Catholic Church taught that if you performed certain rituals, if you kissed every step, said a prayer, and said us X amount of Hail Marys, and did this on every step, that at the end of it, you could purchase merit that would at least lessen the time that this family suffered in purgatory. Well, Luther came to these steps, did everything perfectly, said every prayer, kissed every step got to the top of the steps, looked down to everybody else obeying this ritual, and asked the question, what good did this do? God only knows. What good did it do? Now this puts the thought of doubt 
into Martin Luther's head that eventually springs into the Protestant Reformation. But sometimes I wonder if we ask the same question about some of our rituals. I mean, the ritual of coming to church, the ritual of sitting under the preaching of the Word of God, the ritual of prayer. But probably the thing that we do that is probably ritualized the most is the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. That you, you, you come to the table of the Lord, your elders come and they pass you out little, little pieces of bread and little cups of wine or grape juice, whatever it is. And, and you might start thinking, like, what, what exactly am I accomplishing by doing this? What good is this doing? Well, this is an important question. And it's a question that has been asked repeatedly throughout the history of the church. And so I want to tell you this morning why we do this, why it is good. Kind of piggyback on what Martin Luther said. What good is it? What good is the Lord's Supper? In order to understand what good it is, we need to understand what exactly it is. What is the Lord's Supper? And I want to, I want to speak about this under two headings. First of all, I want to speak about how the Lord's Supper is the visible word, the visible word. And the second thing that I want to talk about is how the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal, is the visible word, and it is a covenant meal. Let's go ahead and dig into this. The visible word. I, I get this term, Not it, John Calvin's the one that popularized it, but it was really begun with St. Augustine of Pippo, who who taught that, that when we take this, it is it is the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his su- mainly his suffering and his death, being brought to life before our senses. Instead of just hearing the word, and it's now becoming true to our eyes, and to our mouths, to our nose, and to our sense of touch. It's becoming more of a sensible thing, being brought to bear not just in our ears, but upon all, all five of our senses. Um, this is, um, um, and, and I, I want to focus real quick on just the, the whole concept of, of the word here and, and, and how this really kind of limits what we do here. And so this isn't, this isn't when we say the visible word, we're not talking about the words of man, the words of philosophy, the words of whatever the, the, you know, the bugaboo of the day is. No, it has to be formed and structured according to what has been prescribed in the word of God is a visible word of God. Now, through time, particularly over the last hundred years within modern day evangelicalism, we've kind of gotten away from that. Like the word of God, like we're not really sure about its inerrancy, we're not really sure about its uh, inspiration. And so we decide we can kind of infuse some of our own things into it. Like one, one example would be this is a few years ago in Florida, a young man had tragically died and his church, which unfortunately a Presbyterian church decided to honor this young man's death by substituting the bread and the wine for the elements of this child's last meal, which was Skittles and Arizona tea. Now, it would be nice to memorialize the death of someone who is near and dear to you, but the Lord's Supper is not the place to do it. We are memorializing what Christ has done. I want to talk about this kind of, this, this memorializing, this kind of word picture thing that we do that is designed to remind us of something that has happened in the past, something that is designed to tangibly connect us to it. 
when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper here in Mark chapter 14, he's really following in a long history of tradition in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was full of these word pictures. These feasts and these festivals were designed to take things from the ancient past and to bring it to bear in people's present realities in a tangible way. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. The Feast of Booth. The Feast of Booth was celebrated to uh, to celebrate the, the, the Israelites' wilderness wandering. And to connect them to that, uh, God had commanded his people to go out one week out of the year and go into the wilderness like their forefathers had done and go essentially camping. To camp out in the wilderness. They're, you're, like you were joining with your ancient forefathers and what they had done. But when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, he's doing the same thing, but not with a piece of booze, but with Passover. Passover was also one of these visible words, with a word picture. It was designed to connect the Israelites back to the original Exodus, particularly how God saved his people using that tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And every element had every element had something to do with the Exodus. The unleavened bread. It couldn't be leavened because the Israelites had to, the Israelites had to go through, uh, had to had to leave very quickly. They didn't have time for yeast to rise and stuff like that. So it had to be unleavened. So they ate unleavened bread. It had to be seasoned with bitter herbs because of how bitter the slavery of Egypt was. They had to they had to eat lamb and sacrifice lamb, use the blood of the lamb because well that's what was used in the Exodus to save people from the angel of death. You know the story. They every household would slaughter a lamb, take the blood, apply it to the doorpost, and it was as if death would come and see that blood and essentially say, Well I've already been here. A life has already been taken. I'm moving on to the next house. I'm passing over this house. It was a design, this feast of Passover was designed to connect them with the past, connect them with something very important. In a sense, memorialize it, build a monument. And why do we build monuments? We build monuments to, to celebrate people or events that seem to us to be very important. We build these monuments because, hey, this person over here or this event, it was so important. It was so good. I loved it so much that I don't think people should forget about it. I think people should always remember it. Uh, back when I was in Huntsville, uh, probably about, going on about three years ago now, uh, just about a quarter mile from our house on East Longstone Road, a, uh, a teenage boy who was 16 years old uh, was walking down East Longstone Road, got hit by a car, and he was killed. His name was... His name was Mason. He was a Florida Gator fan. He had kind of Auburn uh, hair. Uh, he had very fair skin. I can tell you a lot about Mason. But he's not the only person who's been killed in very close proximity to my house. When I was very young, a, a man was found in the ditch just across the street from our house who had been who had been hit by a car. And I can't tell you anything about this man. I don't know his name. I don't know what he looked like. But I can tell you a lot about Mason. I can tell you a lot about the history of Mason, even though I have never met him. Well, why do I know so much about Mason? It's because if you go down East Limestone Road, quarter mile from our house, you'll see a stack of square hay bales. And on that stack of square hay bales, you will see a large picture 
of Mesa. And next to that picture, you will find a Christmas tree. And about once a month, Mason's mother comes out there. She'll change the picture if it's been kind of worn out by the weather. She'll decorate the tree in the garb of whatever the particular closest holiday is. Clovers around St. Patrick's Day, red, white, and blue around uh, around July 4th. And to in order to memorialize her son. So why do I why can I why do I know Mason? Why can I not forget Mason? Because Mason's mother would not allow me to forget Mason. She loved Mason. And she wanted everyone to know that she loved Mason. It is the same is true when we come to the Lord's table. Why do we take the broken body? Why do we take the poured out blood of Christ? It is because your father who is in heaven loved his son so much that he will not suffer his son's sheep to forget him. I think I've probably said this the last three sermons, but it keeps coming up because it's really important. What Martin Luther said, I have to remind myself of the gospel every day because I forget the gospel every day. Why does Christ say, do this, do this often? It's because we are so often and so prone to wonder from God so prone to forget his grace to us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So what does the father do? What is Christ doing? He is being building a monument to this, to remind us of who he was and what he did to bring it to bear, not just on our ears, but upon our eyes and our noses and our mouths to be nourished, to take it into us, to be, so that we might have a connection to what Christ has done in the past. He's totally turning the Passover on its head. Oh, the bitterness of slavery, that was bad. You know what's worse? The bitterness of your sin. You know what's even more bitter than just sin and the misery that it calls? The wrath of God for sin. So what did Christ do? He came to the altar of God. He came to the cross. His body was bruised. His body was broken. And he poured out his blood for you. What's interesting here is in the Christian tradition, there's no more bitter elements. Is there? The bread isn't seasoned with bitter with bitter herbs. The wine, the grape juice, it isn't it isn't soured or anything like that. Why? Because all of the bitterness belonged to Christ. It was His bitterness. It was His suffering. It was His pain. It was by His wounds that you were healed. There's a monument built. But there's so much more than a monument. So much more than a monument. Although some people do. They think that that's, that's really, in effect, all that it is. But it's more than that. It's also a covenant meal. Now, this takes a little bit of time to break, to break down. But I want to focus in first on just the fact that it is a meal. This is what I was speaking to the children about today. Meals that you share with people. You open up your home and you open up your table to have people come and sit with you. This is, it's not just, it's not just like, hey, they're hungry, I'm going to give them something to eat. There's a fellowship nature to that. You're, you're bringing them into your house and you're treating them not as strangers, but you're treating them as, as friends. You're giving them the seat that is reserved to, for family. This is why the Catholic tradition speaks of this as being the altar. But we speak of it as being 
the table. The altar was the cross. But now what do we have? We have a table. And who comes and sits at the, at the table? Friends. Family. It is a testament. The fact that this is a table and not an altar is a testament that you are really and truly reconciled with God. That all of your sins are forgiven and they are not in his presence anymore. And now you have a right not to go and sit in the Albert Court, not to stand out in the yard, not to stand in the servants' quarters, but to come and sit down at the table with God Almighty himself. It's like the story of David and the Pythagore. If you know, if you can remember the story, King Saul has died, David has ascended to the throne, and all of Saul's descendants are, are scared to death that they're not trying to rebel against David's reign. And so they're either rebelling against David and being killed, or they're running for the hills. Well, there's one of them, the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, who can't run. Why? He's crippled. So he has to, he has to, he has to just go out there and hide. But, but, but David remembers that he had made a covenant with Jonathan. That Jonathan was, even though he was the son of Saul, this was his best friend. And so he calls and has Jonathan brought into the palace and you just think what's going through, what's going through Mephibosheth's mind at this point. I'm, I'm about to get my, I'm about to get beheaded. I'm about to be stoned. I'm about to be killed. And he brought into David's presence and what does David do? He says, come and sit next to me at my table. And he did so all the days of his life. He wasn't an enemy of David. Even though even though even though David should have looked at him and said, This guy, he has he has a claim to the throne. He's an enemy of me. He needs to die. That's not what David does. He remembers this covenant that he made with his father. He says, Come and sit with me, dwell with me, come and have fellowship with this is so important in the Christian tradition. When you come to the Lord's table, you are coming that you might fellowship with him. That you might come and fellowship with your brothers and sisters who are also united with Christ Jesus, who is the head and the husband of his church. You are family. You're coming and not sitting at the, at, at, at some, at the table of some distant king, but you're coming and sitting at the table of a friend who loved you and gave himself for you. Though you were a sinner, Christ gave his life for you. That's, that's the one whose table you're coming to. You are really and truly reconciled with God. And because of that, you have communion with Christ. You have communion and real communion with God. And by real communion, I don't mean just in the theological sense. But when you come to the Lord's table and you take that bread in your hand and you take that wine in your hand, Christ is with you in those things. There are many who follow the tradition of Uri, who believe that all the Lord's Supper was, it was just a moment. Now, we in the Reformed tradition, there is a, there is a remembrance aspect to it, most certainly. But it's more than that. That Christ is present in the element. Now, this this drives some Protestants a bit a bit crazy because it it it, it, may, it might might kind of smack of like Catholicism because we know that the Catholics believe that the the bread and the wine are brought to the altar. The priest says a few words, and then through some form of hocus pocus, which is like literally the words that are you said in Latin, 
that the bread is turned into the literal body of Christ and that the wine is turned into the literal blood of Christ. Now, now might it's like, well, that's just that's neither here nor there. That's actually a pretty important, this is actually a pretty important difference. If that's the literal blood and the literal bread of Christ, what that means is when we it, it's it that's what makes it an altar. Christ is being re-crucified. But we don't re-crucify Christ. His once and for all sacrifice was good once and for all. It was totally sufficient. So how is Christ present with us? First Corinthians 10. Paul speaks about how the cup that we bless, is it not participation, koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the broken body of Christ? That word koinonia, it's, it's translated as, 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 as participation, but it could also be translated as, as fellowship or communion. That when you take in those elements by faith, you are taking in the broken body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Well, how is he connected with that? It is by way of the Holy Spirit. It's what John Calvin called a spiritual union. And that might sound very kind of supernatural or maybe even superstitious to us. But if you think about it, everything that we believe and everything that we do as a Christian is all connected with this idea of spiritual union. I mean, what does Paul say about you and Christ? In Ephesians 2, does he not say that, that, that in Christ, God has risen us with him from the dead and has seated us with him in the heavenly places? Look at what just happened. Paul is both saying that you were with Christ 2,000 years ago. You were risen up with him. When he rose out of the, out of the grave, you came out of the grave as well. But it's not just in the past. It's even right here and right now. And he seated us with him in the heavenly place. Yes, you're in the pews at Salem Presbyterian Church, but you're also at the right hand of God. And the one who sits at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for you day in and day out, you know where he is? He is sitting in the pews at Salem Presbyterian Church, and he is going to follow you home, and he's going to follow you to work. And he's going to follow you to school. Everywhere you go, he will be. And wherever he is, you are there as well. Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ is dying upon the cross and, and, and bearing in his body the guilt and the wrath of God for sin, he was accounted as you. Why? Because you were united to him. When there's a real sense when a Christian can be asked when Christ or when did you die? Where the literal answer could be, I died, I died in the year 33 AD upon a hill called Calvary. That's where I died. And I came out of the tomb because what Christ, what was Christ is mine and what mine is Christ. Let me read for you the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 79. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood? And why does Paul speak of participation in the body and the blood of Christ? This is the answer. Christ speaks in this way for a good reason. 
He wants to teach us by his supper that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But even more important, now this is, this is the big part here, but even more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge first, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with our mouths these holy signs in remembrance of him. And second, that all of his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. That is how radical your union with Christ is. And that is how radical the union between Christ and that little trinket of bread and that little token of wine or grape juice is. Just as you are tasting with your mouth, just as you are being nourished by it, so is your soul being nourished by the work of Christ. That when you come to the Lord's table and take and partake of it by faith, you are truly feeding upon Christ. People often think, oh, that's Spiritual doesn't mean real. Hogwash. It is real. It is very, very real. And when you come and you partake in him, you receive a real and true grace. I like I don't know, I can't remember who said it, but I I think it I think it's I think it's great. In the sacrament of the supper, we do not receive a better Christ, but we do receive Christ better. We're not just receiving him with our ear. We're receiving him with our whole being, with our mouths, with our noses, our ears. And it's here I want to focus in a little bit on this concept of coming and receiving him by faith. I think a lot of us can go to 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul, Paul says those really hard words that everyone must examine himself before coming to the Lord's table lest you take and eat and drink your own judgment. Those are horrifying words. But when we interpret that as meaning that, well, before I can take the supper, I need to make sure my act, I've gotten my act together. I, I need to make sure that I didn't sin all that much this past week. But what happens if that's our interpretation and we see ourselves as we really are before a holy God? Sinners unworthy of life. Sinners unworthy of any of the blessings of heaven. None of us would come to the table. And so, what do we do? When you come to the table, you do not come to the table in any way that is different than when you, the way you first came to Christ. When he came into Christ, what, what did he say? Come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, O wretched sinner, and I will forgive your sins. O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? You did not wait to become good enough for the blood of Christ and the broken body of Christ. He offered himself really and truly and freely. For God shows his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You did not come to Christ because you were righteous enough. You came to Christ because you were sick and you needed medicine. 
You were dead and you needed a resurrection. That is why you came to Christ. Why would you think that you would come to the table of the Lord by any other means? You come to the table that you might feed upon Christ by faith. You come to him an assurance because you because you believe and you trust that even though your sins are as are crimson red, your garments are as white as snow through the precious blood of Christ. That is how you come to the table. But this requires blood. In verse 24, he says, this cup is my blood of the covenant. I want to focus in on the marvelous grace. That little, little word. Covenant between man and God is a, is a, is a, is a, is a, an agreement made between two people. And when you go to the, when you go to the book of Genesis and you see God's covenant with Abraham, God has come to him and he's made promises to Abraham. I am going to make you the father of many nations, but Abraham is old. Sarah is old. He doesn't have any children. Nothing's, nothing's taking place. He's like, God, how, how can I be sure that you're going to do these things? And God says, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. And then he has, he has Abraham take these animals and split them in two. And then, and then Abraham falls asleep. And then in a vision, he sees God walking through the pieces in the, in the, in the, in the, in the image of a, of a smoldering pot. That seems very strange to us. But if you were living in ancient times, you'd know exactly what was happening. That was something called a suzerain vassal treaty. It's where two two people would make a covenant with one another. They would make certain agreement. They would make certain law. And then they would split an animal from two and they would walk between the pieces. What that's, what that's symbolizing is that if either party fail to keep that covenant, may what has happened to these animals happen to them as well. May I be split into my, my blood be split. And both parties will walk through the pieces. With Abraham, both parties do not walk. Abraham is asleep. He is purely passive. God walks through the pieces. What God is saying there is he's saying, Abraham, on my life, I will fulfill everything that I have done. And that is exactly what he did. This is my blood of the covenant. It should say, it, 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 it really should be. If, if God was not gracious, if it was me in the place of God, it would say, your blood. But it's not your blood. It is the blood of Christ shed and poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. That is what he says. This is my blood of the covenant. God became flesh that he might fulfill those words that he gave to Abraham, that he might be split, that he might be cut in two, and that he might pour out his own blood for your sins. That is the that is the God which you have to meet. When you come to the table, you're not coming to some distant relative who barely, who barely knows you. Coming to the God who gave his son. The last, the last refrain, uh, and can it be that thou, my God, didst die for me? Tis mystery, all the immortal dies. 
This is the will that we take in. This is the work that we take in. So why do we attain to the ordinary means when there's so many more, quote, extraordinary things that we could be doing? It's because this is what God has told us to do. And if he is so richly gracious to us as he shows himself to be in the gospel, then why would we want to add or take away? They come and sit on the word, you hear the gospel, you receive grace. When you go to him in prayer, you receive intercession. When you come to the Lord's table, you receive communion with the king and creator of the heavens. But why? Because you have reconciled with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much. But we have received such an abundant outpouring of your grace. Father, I'd ask that the grace that you have given to us would not merely be a gift for the here and now, but that it would be a gift that will bring us through life and ultimately bring us before the face of your Son, Jesus Christ, in glory. Father, Forgive us and sustain us by your word and by your means of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.